So as we come to chapter 29, we still have David. David's been the star of the book here in this, the last third of the book. It's all been about David, his administration, the things he put in place, all that he put in order. And it's just awesome because David, of course, is the man who had a heart for God. And we're just so blessed by his life and the legacy of his life. And I think I speak for all of us that we're inspired by his life because in spite of his failures, he just had this wonderful, incredible relationship with God. And with God's mercy appropriately applied to his failures, he was constantly going forward with the good things of the Lord. And tonight, we really, really, really do see the end of David. Tonight, he goes into eternity and Solomon, his son, steps up. So in chapter 29, verse 1, we pick it up with this. Furthermore... King David said to all the assembly, so all the people were gathered together, and he'd exhorted Solomon for the work that was in front of him, the people that were in front of him, to build this temple. And so David said to all the assembly, my son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now, for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might, gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I've set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God, over and above all that I prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses, the gold for things of gold and the silver for things of silver, for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of the craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? So we'll stop there for a second. So David, has ever, you know, they're all still assembled. If you recall last week, they're all gathered together. He gave the exhortation to the people. He gave the exhortation to Solomon. He said, Solomon, I've given you everything you need. And so here in this assembly, he, he says this to the assembly. And what's interesting about this chapter is David is in that final, like, weeks or days of his life, essentially. And Solomon is to become the king. And so there's really two, two stars of this chapter. It is David with what he's done. And it is Solomon with what is, he could do. It's like if you've ever ran track and field in a relay race where you pass the baton, there really is the baton being passed here. And truly, both hands, in a way, are on the baton right now in this chapter. Because when we get to the next book, Second Chronicles, there's nine chapters of Solomon building the temple. There's no more David. So we really, this really is a setup chapter sealing this book with the baton in the hand of David and Solomon and David given just that last word of exhortation and encouragement to his son and to the people. And that's our, our context here. We see, because he says, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and I've done all these things to set him up for success. And truly David had. He arranged all the most skillful people. He got the land. He's got the wealth. He, he's got the plans. I mean, he really set his son up to be extremely successful and capable in the power of the Lord to do the task that he was entrusted to do to build the temple. And as he just transitions this and really sets it before the people, he says there, because I've set my affection on the house of my God, I've given to the house of my God over and above all that I've prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. 
David, of course, was a very generous man. He's a very wealthy man, and he's a very generous man. I've been thinking about this text quite a bit this week. Like you think, well, you know, if you know you're going into eternity and you have a lot of wealth, you really, if you're smart, you want to figure out how to give it away. And you want to give it away to the kingdom of God. You want to give it away to people who are efficient for the kingdom of God. So, for example, like Samaritan's Purse with Franklin Graham or the Harvest Crusade and ministries like that, they're more than happy to set you up with an endowments. You know, like if you want to will money to them or put it in the trust for them, and, and they're very happy to receive those funds and appropriate them to the heart, like the Harvest Crusade at the pond this summer, or to Samaritan's Purse and even Operation Christmas Child. It's a great opportunity because really you think when you're about to step into eternity, if you have excess wealth, you'd be really smart to give it away. You don't want to like, you don't want to leave it in the bank, where, in a sense where you didn't sow it. Like, what I'm saying is I think you really want to sow what you got as you step into eternity because you want to have dividends for eternity and you want to be pursuing and continuing the kingdom of God once you're gone. That would be really wise. That's what David's doing here. But you think, well, it would seem kind of easy to give away a bunch of gold and silver to the Lord's temple when you're going to the real temple. Like, if you think about it, like he's giving away the goods for the temporal temple when he's about to go to the real temple, the temple in heaven. Still, though, it's honorable. Andrew Carnegie was the richest man on planet Earth when he was alive. He worked very hard. He made money in railroad first and then in steel. And he, he, was, a, he was a steel guy. He's a hustler. And he hung out with the Rockefellers and all those people. And, of course, at the end of his life, he set up the Carnegie Foundation where he basically built libraries all over the world. He wanted to give people a chance to have education and a, a better opportunity in life. And a lot of those rich people from that time did stuff like that. But I saw a quote of his not long ago that really got my attention. And he said this, it's harder to give away the money than it was to earn it. And see, one of the things about Carnegie is, is he saw it where he made so much money that the money was making more money than he can spend it. Like once the money hit all those zeros and the compound effect was in play for the interest on the money, there were so many tabs open making so much money that he was making more money faster than he could even give it away. And he said it was actually much harder to appropriate the money to find the right investments for the money. And I was just thinking like, man, that's tough for someone who like, you're not really sure who was out with the Lord. I mean, libraries are nice, but Harvest Crusade is better. You know, like, endowments for humanity are nice, and, but, uh, I don't know, shoeboxes for Jesus are better, I think, for eternity. Wouldn't you agree? So I look at David and say, wow, he's doing it. He's just doing it like he's all this wealth. Now, he would have left wealth for all of his sons. He had many sons. And in a way, if you look at his life, he's going to the Lord. So it's David and the Lord here. If you've got little pyramids, David and the Lord here at the top. And then he's got personal wealth that's going this way to all the family and the wives and Bathsheba and Abigail and all of them and their, their kids and their kids' kids. So he's got this, this endowment fund working this way for them. And there's going to be future kings coming from there through the line of Solomon. But then over here, he's got like the kingdom of God. So he's got all this wealth that he transfers here. And this wealth is working for the kingdom. And it's going in the temple. And it's going to keep working for the kingdom of God for literally centuries. His wealth went really far. It went for centuries because the temple stood for centuries and it was a central place of worship for centuries for the people of God. That's a wonderful thing. And his personal wealth that he still hung on to would have gone in this direction to provide for his children and his children's children. So 
No wonder Solomon would say a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children because that's exactly what his dad David did as it went through Solomon and the other brothers and princes onto their families. Now, we can't all do that. But one thing we can all do is love the house of the Lord and love the kingdom of God and love the great commission and the central purpose of the entire human race. The single most important thing of the church is to preach the gospel and fulfill the great commission. That is the single most important thing. We build up one another. We share spiritual gifts. We, as iron sharpens iron, we do all that. But the great commission is the, the core action of everything that the church is meant to be. And once the church loses its identity of fulfilling the Great Commission, any church, it loses its, it loses its equilibrium, which is a scary thing having had stuff like that happen in my life. It's a scary thing. The Great Commission keeps every local church and the universal church on track. That while we want to bring social impact positively and favorably in every generation, in every country, however we can, the communist Chinese are doing the same thing. They're bringing betterment for people's lives all over Africa and the world right now. But they're not bringing Jesus. Bringing Jesus is the key. Bringing the good news and the Great Commission is the key. I was praying for David Guzik last month. He was in Africa for the Calvary Chapel Africa conference in Nairobi. Isn't that cool? Yeah. David Guzik just... What a neat guy, you know, serves the Lord. Many of you know who he is. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor. I've been doing all kinds of wonderful things for years. I thought, you know, that, like, David Guzik is off the grid. You just don't even know, like, what this guy is doing. And yet, there he is in Africa, building up the saints and all these churches and these leaders in Nairobi. That's how we want to think. When you think about your long-term wealth, when you think about any excessive wealth, you want to, you want to be thinking about the kingdom of God with your time and your energy and your resources to be sowing bountifully. We've sent lots of money to Africa in recent years, over the last decade. We could send money. David Guzik went there, right? He was ministering to people that we support in the mission field, including the Buell family on the wall, our children's ministry room right now. That's pretty cool. Just a reminder to us that David had the heart for the kingdom and the things of God and the courts of God, and that's where he was at. And there's all kinds of things that can, that can distract us. There's all kinds of things that can distract us from losing that central focus of the things that really matter, the busyness of life. But it's going to always come back to that we come to the church to, to worship the Lord and build up one another, but the church has a great commission, and we have an identity and it is to share the good news and to advance the kingdom in every generation to the best of our abilities as the Lord leads and guides us. Something interesting, too, about David here, where he said that I've set my affection on the house of God, which is a strong exhortation, isn't it? Because we set our affections on a lot of things, to set our affections on the house of God. Church is really special to some people, not as special to other people. We talked about this during COVID. When we were told we couldn't sing in church, we're like, you got to be kidding me. But just the mere fact that I thought I'm willing to die on this hill means I should be in this church right when the service starts and be singing to the Lord. Because I'm not going to go to jail for singing to the Lord when I started on the third song. I want to go to jail for singing for the Lord by the first chorus of the first song. Right? You follow me? Spiritual things are special to spiritual people. They're not as special to people who 
I'm just spiritual, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what to say. But David said in the Psalm 27, he said, One thing have I desired the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, there's, we know, a few songs that have that text in it. That's Psalm 27.4. In David's Psalms, five times in the first book of Psalms, he references the temple of the Lord, which is pretty fascinating if you think about it because it wasn't even built. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. Five times he's saying about the temple of the Lord, which was never built in his timeline. He's saying by faith for what was going to happen in the future, both in planet Earth and time, space, and matter through his son Solomon, but I think truly he was singing by faith to the ultimate temple of the Lord, the throne room of God. But I find it very interesting that David's saying five times about the throne of God and the temple of God before it was ever built. Isn't that cool? David saying about the future. So it's only natural to be all in with giving to the temple in his final acts of his life in time, space, and matter. But really, when you're excited about where you're going, who needs extra baggage, right? Jennifer went to Florida this week, and she had one check-on bag, and then Leah called her from Florida. Hey, I need this stuff at my house. So she had to go over to Costa Mesa, get the Leah stuff for these photo shoots, because she's that kind of a person. Gets all that stuff. She has all another suitcase. So when I drop off at John Wayne Sunday morning, she's got extra baggage. Well, what we want to do is we want to give away everything on this side of time, space, and matter. So when we get to there, we're, we're traveling light, right? If you follow me. David was all about the kingdom without distraction. You never associate with David idols, false worship, or those sorts of things. You can look at the man's faults, but you will not associate false worship, idols, and temporal gods. He was all in for the Lord, and the Lord was all in for him. Now, he gave everything, so now he turns his attention to the the nation, and he says in verse 6, Then the leaders of the fathers' houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and hundreds, with the officers over the king's work, Offered willingly, they gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 darics of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron, and whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord, and King David also rejoiced greatly." This is such a special passage of scripture here for a couple different reasons. So David had that heart for the Lord and just really was all about the kingdom business and the temple of the Lord. And where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And his was in heaven. He just, yeah, he took care of his family, but he took care of the kingdom. And here, he he then lays forces this exhortation. He said, I did all this. Now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to give like I've given. So right there, what a great principle that really giving comes from the leadership through inspiration, not manipulation. That's how giving should be. To be stirred up for giving from leadership should come by inspiration and example, not by manipulation and coercion. You can kind of tell when you're being inspired to give of your time and your energy and your resources with anything. 
But you can tell when you're being manipulated or guilted kind of a thing. You can tell. See, we're self-determined with the Lord, and it's, it's nice when we let God's work unfold in people's lives by them being self-determined by free choice. That's the best way things happen. You'd rather have a few people who willingly offer themselves to do the work of the Lord than a number of people that you manipulate or guilted into doing the work of the Lord that are doing it begrudgingly, which is the whole thought behind what Paul said to the Corinthians concerning giving, where he put it this way. But this I say to you, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of us give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have abundance for every good work, as it is written, quoting Psalm 112, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Speaking of a generous spirit. So that text from Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, is one that I quote fairly often for the principle of sowing bountifully because we know in God's universe, whatever you put out is exactly what you get back. Jesus said, good measure, pressed down. Jesus said it for both positive and negative. The measure you judge will be judged of you, right? And the measure you sow will be sowed back to you. It's a universal law. It's a law of the universe. It's a spiritual law of the universe that cannot be changed whether you agree with it or disagree with it. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. And God doesn't force it on us. And though I truly believe the tithe, giving a tenth of our resources to the kingdom of God, is the, the right starting point, clearly David shows us that it's above and beyond that as you choose to and as you're led of the Lord. And many of you have shown that time and time again. This, of course, is a very generous church. This church was profoundly generous during the tough times of COVID when people were a little bit more fearful of finances. This church rose to the occasion and was even more generous and found a whole other gear in the cruxable of the COVID pandemic and really rose to the occasion. And God used us to bless so many people worldwide who, who had faced uh, some famine financially, and we helped carry them through that. And most of all of them are still, still serving in ministry having come through that. Because in case you don't know it, a lot of people didn't come through COVID, their ministries. A lot of ministries and a lot of people didn't survive the COVID pandemic, how it affected their churches, how maybe the churches responded, however they felt led, for better or for worse. But a lot of people in the mission field, they just, they came home. And quite a few of them never went back and haven't gone back yet. God led us to really support a lot of those people. And I praise the Lord that we did, that from our abundance, we're able to bless so many people. I think as a church, we're very inspired to be giving beyond me and even our leadership, but really just sort of like watching Pastor Chuck Smith and how God used him to be a very generous man and show us how generosity works. And all the ministries we're surrounded by. Bill Welsh is one of the most generous people I know right up the road here at Refuge. He, if you don't know, he's one of the most giving, generous people I've ever come across in the body of Christ. I love people like that. And I've been inspired by people like that. You know, Skip Heisig is approaching his 70s, and he's been so generous his entire life of ministry. And now, you know, he's just even more and more involved with Franklin Graham and Samaritan's person than he ever has been before. And even talking to someone last month who's in the know, saying like, you know, that's the direction Skip's going. So when you don't see Skip being the lead pastor anymore in Albuquerque, you can be sure he's going to be somewhere with Franklin Graham figuring out how to bring the gospel to suffering places of the world, either through shoeboxes or disaster relief. We have a great legacy in the Calvary movement to trust God for finances, 
to acknowledge God with finances and to sow bountifully. And I rejoice in that. I truly do. I'm very grateful that when I was on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa with Pastor Chuck Smith, that I was under a man who not only taught the scriptures faithfully, but through his personal wealth gave way more than a tithe to the kingdom of God. Way more than the tithe to the, to the kingdom of God. The man so bountifully, not just with ministry that extended to the ends of the earth, not just with the people to the ends of the earth that are out there doing the work still, but even in people like me on staff. And how it's amazing. So we should be inspired by generous people. And we should be inspired to be generous people. Never coerced, but inspired. Because I've been the, the point man on so much of our giving, I get, I get, well, we try and do it anonymously, as you know. But sometimes you can't do it anonymously. You just, sometimes just, people got to know, like, you're the, you're the source. And people tend to be very grateful when you, because when you invest in people's ministries, they know you believe in them, Right? So when people do things with this ministry, invest in us, maybe above and beyond, I appreciate that. I was like, wow, they believe in me and they trust me and they trust our leadership, our board. They trust our vision, what we're doing. And, and, I, and I take that responsibility very reverently and seriously. Oh, it's a great thing to sow bountifully. And look what it says about David. Think about it. He's in the very tail end of his life. And you think, what brings a man in the last few weeks, if you will, of his life, what brings him joy? Well, it says he rejoiced greatly when he saw that the people gave willingly. Generous people that he influenced, that he inspired not by, he inspired by his actions, he didn't coerce by manipulation, but he inspired through inspiration. And isn't that, isn't that cool? As you complete your journey of life, and we all will, may we be found in the latter part of our life being able to inspire people by how generous we have been with our time, our energy, and our resources, and inspire them when we see them being generous people with who they are. We're not just talking, we're not talking finances here. We're talking the total being of how we are and how we carry ourselves. How much joy is there in the final season of life for King David to see the people, to see the fruit of his life in the generosity of these people? What a beautiful, well, it says he, they offered willingly to the Lord. They rejoiced. The people rejoiced. Verse 9. And King David also rejoiced greatly. That's a, it's a, I just can't think of a greater ending. Like, if you can picture yourself on your deathbed, and you're cognizant, you know, you're aware and alert what's going on, and the people surrounding you that you've sown generously into them with your time and your energy and your resources, the kingdom, your family, and all these people, and you're surrounded by people that, because you are a giver, not a taker. Takers often die alone, you know. But a giver and a sower, and, and like, just to look at these people, and you can look around them, it's like, ah, you know, we sowed into them and we see the fruit going on as we see them as being generous people and how generous they've been with their lives. What a beautiful ending that must have been for David. The joy of releasing all that wealth to the kingdom of God, but even the greater joy of seeing the people that he led as their chief shepherd be inspired to do the same. What a, what a great story. But God loves a cheerful river, so we never... 
we shouldn't feel begrudging in giving, nor should we allow ourselves to be manipulated in giving. I quote Jeremy Foster all the time on this topic, our former associate pastor. He used to say, like, I'm not feeling it, so I'm not giving it. You know, it's just like, God is a cheerful giver. I'm not feeling cheerful about this right now, right? Like, you know, it's kind of funny because neither am I. But then there's times like, let's do it. Let's write the check. Send the money. You know, like, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's just do it. But sometimes like, no, nah, I'm just not feeling this right now. I'm not feeling it. So the lesson is be, be a joyful giver and inspire other people to do the same. Now we pick up in verse 10 because the story goes forward. So in verse 10, therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, our Lord, is the greatness the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you reign over all. And in your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all and praise your glorious name. Now we therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we've, we've given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you as were our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for you, your holy name, is from your hand. And is all yours, your own. And I know also, my God, that you test the hearts and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy, I've seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart towards you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. And then David said to all the assembly, now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. This is, again, this is such a wonderful chapter. Don't you agree? Like the whole... The visuals on this chapter are like amazing when you see the assembly and you try and picture Israel. And if you've ever been there, I picture Jerusalem and I picture what all this looked like and just, wow, like this really happened this way. The baton is being passed and this is how it's playing out. But in this song of praise, if you will, in verses 10 through 15, David goes over the greatness of the Lord and a couple things get just contextually get our attention he refers to God as our father this is the first usage of God as our father in the bible blessed are you lord god of israel our father forever and ever isn't that special our father then he also says yours is the kingdom and the and the power the power and the glory which sounds a lot like the lord's prayer as well right because the lord's prayer starts with our father in heaven and then yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever is how it ends and so many a commentator would note that this song of david just seems very foreshadowing of when jesus would teach us how to pray our father who art in heaven and then ending with yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever which is to remind us when we pray daily as a template if you will or in principle that god's on the throne and in control 
And I just love how David says, all these things, they, they come from you. We're only giving back to you what is yours, right? Like, what does a woman or a man have that the Lord didn't give him? Our breath of life, our very breath is in his hands. It's a fascinating thought to think we are one cell in our mother's womb at the point of conception. And even conception itself is amazing. Like, the very reproductive systems and the like within one cell not only is the beginning of of the life of the species us being humans but also in the animal kingdom but within that cell is not only the intelligence to produce that kind each after their own kind because dogs always produce dogs cats produce cats and people produce people there's no dats or no cogs right it's always after their own kind and it's all there but not only in that one cell within the intelligence of that cell is the intelligence from within that one cell to create more human beings later on. That one cell has within it a male or a female that will have within them the capacity to do their part to continue to advance the species. It's mind-blowing. God is so detailed and just so Lord of the universe. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And everything we are is from the Lord. We were one cell in our mother's womb. We didn't choose when we'd be conceived we didn't choose our families. In chapter one of my book, I'm like, that's my family. My dad, the Marine, my Catholic mom, my older brother, my younger sister. This is the family God gave me, and you got the family God gave you. We didn't, we choose our friends, but we, don't, we can't choose our family. We can choose how much time we spend with our friends and our family, but family's family. That's the family God gave me. He gave me that liberal Protestant dad from Madison, Wisconsin, born in 1930. Patriotic military family. He gave me the devout Catholic mom from the Irish Catholic family. Cleveland, Ohio, blue collar dad, hardworking Catholics, made sure that she went to all girls' Catholic schools for 16 years. Well, Bud Ottman was serious. And those two people met, short, short dating period, <laughs> and they got married. And they had three children, I'm the middle child. I had no choice in it. Nor did you. As Paul said in Acts 17, he's predetermined our boundaries and seasons when we live. And everything who we are is of the Lord. Everything we have is from the Lord. Now, obviously, there's accountability to be fruitful and productive with the Lord, stewardship, you know, all the parables of the minas and all these other things. That's from the Lord. We understand that. But if you have a beautiful voice, for example, when Jeff Anderson's here, we, we all know, like, who's got a voice like Jeff Anderson? When he leads worship. I mean, you just immediately just like, this is, this is elite. This is like really high level. It's like a, a, a sprinter and they're an Olympic sprinter. You know, like this is a really, you just can't make that happen. This is a skill, a talent, a singing voice. Or when people are really smart and they can naturally do things like build rocket ships, put people on the moon and be able to breathe on the moon with one-sixth the gravity of planet Earth. Like, I mean, there's people that are that, what can you do? But even so, it's from the Lord. So if we seem below average in any capacity or above average in any capacity or just vanilla average right down the middle in any capacity, it's still from the Lord. And there's, like I always say, there's greatness to be had in the Lord in that. But everything we have is from the Lord. It's amazing when people are super prideful and arrogant with their gifts. But we naturally do that. We all did it. We do it, did it, and hopefully we, don't, we won't do it. But we are prone that way. It's all from the Lord. 
our life, our timeline, our talents, the relationships that are special to us, our wealth. God gives favor to bless us. Sometimes it just works that way. And when you have good health, our health. Man, if you've got good health, life is a lot better than when you don't have good health. And the older I get, the more I understand that. And many of you know what I'm talking about. It's all from the Lord. It's all a test. Like David says, it's all a test. He said, I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. It's all a test. Like, can he give it to you? Can you sow it? Can he give it to you? Can you sow it and grow it? Can he give it to you? Or do you like, ha! It's all a test. It's all a test. It's all a test. How faithful can you be in the little things to be entrusted with other things? It's fascinating to me that in those parables of the minas and whatnot, that the person who did nothing with God gave with what God gave them in those parables, earthly stories with heavenly purposes, that what they had is taken from them and given to someone who was faithful with what they did. This is God teaching. This isn't some book on success from men of, of sons of Adam. This is Jesus teaching. That those who didn't do anything with their gifts were taken from them and given to someone else who was more faithful. To him or her who has, more will be given. And it's been well said, if you made the whole world socialist at one time and everyone has equal footing, which, you know, the vast majority of people, by the way, like 85% of the people don't even want to work. So let's figure that one out right away. But if you redistribute everything, put everyone at square zero, the same 3% people five years from now are going to be in charge of things just as they are today. Because they're the ones that have their hustle on are getting after it, whether it's apart from the Lord, it's sons of Adam creating God's image, or sons of the second Adam serving the king by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's always going to be about 3% of the people that really get things done and make things happen. God tests us. Everything's a test, and particularly our life, how we manage our time, how we manage our resources, how we treat people, relationships. It's, it's all a test. How we respond, how we react, it's all, it's all a test. How we think, what we think upon, it's all a test. Will we submit those thoughts to the Lord? Will we yield to the Lord? Will we let God's word reign over us? Or will we let our flesh reign over us? Will we humble ourselves or exalt ourselves? It's, it's all a test. Every day is a test. But if you're set toward the kingdom and you're about the kingdom, and the day is set for the kingdom, and the decisions are all kingdom-oriented, you're, you're going to do, do pretty good. As a whole, you're going to do really well. You might not throw the, the right pitch every time, but most of your pitches are going to be the right pitch. You're, you're going to, you know, your general trend is, like, you might go like this and this, but you're going like this. You're trending the right way. You might have a little ebb and flow, but you're, you're going the right way. It's all a test. Pass the test, and God, it's all a test. And then I just love how at the very end, everyone just like, they're humbled before the Lord, they're humbled before the king. It's a, it's a beautiful scene. It's incredible. So when we think about this, just know that everything you are, everything that you have, everything that you are, everything that you will be, it's all from the Lord. And the more you can give it back to the Lord, the more you can be fruitful for the Lord, and the more you can fulfill what he has for us. Because I think I can say for almost all of us, I'm not at all satisfied to think I've fulfilled the potential that God has for my life at the age of 62. In fact, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm more realistic about what God's done in my life in the last... If you asked me two years ago what God had done in my life and how I felt about it, 
I would say, I'm not, I, I would give myself a higher rating than right now. But the more I'm pressing in and the more I'm really like thinking toward the kingdom and really thinking about the day of the Lord, the more I'm realizing like that, you know, that wasn't as, that wasn't as good as I thought. You know, the funny thing about watching dance videos of yourself, sometimes you feel like you nailed it. Like, oh, I just nailed that song. And then you look at it like, man, don't let anyone see that. Jeez, don't let anyone see that. You know, like just trash can. You know, like, and that's how it is sometimes in life. You're like, ah, I did really good. Like, no, you didn't. And, um, but then sometimes you think you didn't do that good and you did better than you thought, right? Like your certain Bible says, I teach, I go like, oh, that was the worst. And like, no, that wasn't so bad. Like that was, Jennifer's like, see, I told you it was a good study. And sometimes that happens even with dancing too. It's like, ah, but you know, there's a lot of times you think this and it, no, it was that. It's all a test and we want to get better. Yesterday's behind us. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. We have right now. And in the moment, a plan for today. The main things of the day, staying on point, not getting distracted by this, that, and everything else. Staying on point, it's A-A-A, B-B-B, C-C-C. And if there's things undone, let them be C's and second half of B's. But if you don't get the A's, the three things that you know you're called to do this day, moving toward the main thing God has for you, then the only person you can blame, don't blame the president, don't blame the governor, blame the person in the mirror. Because the gift of life is the gift of life God gave you today and how you use it is between you and him. And you should care enough about the gift of life to know exactly as best you can what, are the, what is the main thing that the gift of this day is all about and what are the three main things moving me toward that that he has for me today. And if you come up short, don't blame the politicians. They're not responsible for the gift of your life. I am for mine and you are for yours. Because we may not really change anything outside these walls, but when we look in the mirror, we can definitely accept responsibility for that person and invite the Holy Spirit to change us, and he will for better. And doesn't that make your universe better? <laughs> You're like, you really are a master of your universe under the king of the universe because it's between you and the Lord. The whole thing is a test. So we fall down before the Lord and we say, yeah, Lord, it's all yours and it came from you, it's going to you, and all we, man, we need to serve you. And that's it, and nothing else matters. Verse 21, we read on now. So now the focus goes from this great moment to a summary of the, the beginning of Solomon and the end of David. And they made sacrifices to the Lord and offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the next day. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, uh, a thousand lambs with drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. Man, that's a lot of sacrifices. So they ate and drank before the Lord with great gladness on that day. And they made Solomon the son of David, son of King David, the, the king the second time and anointed him before the Lord to be the leader and Zadok to be priest. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David, his father, and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. So there's like summary verses. And all the leaders and the mighty men and also all the sons of King David submitted themselves to King Solomon. Did you catch that? So David's mighty men that are still alive, all those mighty men from the cave of Abdullam, the rest, and the other brothers, they submitted themselves to King Solomon, of course, with the exception of Adonijah. Verse 25, So the Lord exalted Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as has not been on any king before him in Israel. So, of course, there have only been a couple of kings, but the, the standing out of David as a king, excuse me, of Solomon as a king, is second to none as far as administration, organization, and financial wealth. So the second time, now remember in Kings, 
Solomon was anointed to be king when uh, Adonijah, his brother, was leading a rebellion of treason against him. So they rather expediently, in, not in a panic, but with urgency, they recognized him as king. They recognized him as king to put, away, put, to put down the treasonous rebellion and make it clear to the people who the successor was to David. That already happened, but you know, it's kind of quick. Like a, uh, like a superior court marriage, you know, those things that happen fast. Happen pretty quick. You know, sometimes during COVID, people had some quick weddings and then they came back and did a bigger wedding later on or a bigger reception. It's kind of like that. Like it was very hurried when he was anointed to be king the first time. So they kind of rebooted it, slowed it down, and anointed him a second time where everyone could enjoy it and not feel like we're avoiding civil war right now by anointing him king like when he had first been anointed king as we read about in 1 Kings chapter 1. Something about Solomon that gets my attention, though. I just can't help think about this. He had such blessing and favor from the Lord. But it's been well said. To have favor from the Lord is just that. It's grace. If God gives you favor in something, that's grace. He might give some more favor than others in a certain situation. That's just grace. But to have favor from men, that's a different thing. You've got to earn that. Just because God's given you favor doesn't mean the boss is going to give you favor. Just because God's got his hand on you doesn't mean the boss is going to bless you. In the real world, favor with God is one thing, but favor with your boss is another. One thing is received by grace. The other is earned by attitude and effort and diligence to the things that you're called to do. And that's worth noting. And what kind of gets me with Solomon here, like, we know the end of the story, and it's not that good of an ending. So he's got all the hype. He's like a first-round draft pick. He's like the first pick. He's like, oh, we got Solomon, you know? The Spurs won the lottery last week in the NBA, and they got that tall guy from France. He's like 7'8", and he's like the best basketball player in decades. And so they're partying in the streets in San Antonio that glory days are coming back to the Spurs. But, you know, he hasn't even played a game yet. <laughs> and you older people know, like, eh, the end of a matter is better than the beginning. Yes and amen? Just because someone looks the part or acts the part doesn't mean they'll be the part. So Solomon, he's the guy. We'll get a lot more Solomon in the coming weeks. Verse 26. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel, and the period that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron. 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. So he died in a good old age, full of days and riches and honor, and Solomon his son reigned in his place. Now the acts of David, first and last, indeed they're written in the book of, of Samuel the seer, in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer, Obviously, those two books are not scripture, um, but there's a record that was there historically with them as well. With all his reign and his might and the events that happened to him, to Israel and all the kingdoms of the lands. The end. That's the end of David. In my book, I originally on one of my drafts, I had the end. Jennifer's like, you can't say that because you're still alive. But there's a day when it is the end. And all of our acts, all of our period, when we reigned, the things we did, it'll all be done. So may the Lord give us wisdom to see the end and to live with clarity, intention, and purpose to fulfill everything while we're in front of the end so we feel good about the end. Because there will be an end. And I want it to be like a good movie. 
Remember when you're growing up and you go to the theaters and you see those like John Wayne kind of Western movies or certain movies like, you know, Sound of Music, the end, you know, the fields are alive. Like it's like the end and you feel good. They're getting out. They're going to, you know, they're going to Switzerland. It's a happy ending. Body of Christ, worship generation. We can all agree. Every one of us wants a happy ending. In spite of all of his flaws and blemishes and failures, we have to agree in verses uh, 26 to 30, David indeed had a very happy ending. The credits are rolling right now. We're like, I feel really good about this movie. And I did say this, but I almost cried today, thinking, I don't know if I'll ever see David again teaching through the Bible. We've hung out with David a couple times in the last two years. I'm like, we might get him in the Psalms if we live long enough. I live long enough. But the end, and I feel really good. I'm very inspired by the life of David and this final chapter of all the good that he did and all the inspiration he's given to humanity for 3,000 years to live a life of faith. And we, even more so, because what he looked to, we know in fullness in Christ. And the heart he had for God, we can have for God. And that's, you know when you walk out of a movie and you're inspired? Oh, like, you know, it's kind of corny, but those Rocky movies, they got me. I was a pro athlete. I mean, I remember seeing Rocky and Durbin one time during the pro tour. I saw like Rocky 3 with Clubber Lang. I was like, oh, I pity the fool. I ran out of theater. I ran down the contest site. I was on the podium going, Joey Brand is going to win this contest. Like, you like to be inspired by a movie. The end. Be inspired by David's life. The end.